The History of Castlebar podcast is sponsored by mayobooks.ie. Hello and welcome to the History of Castlebar podcast. I'm Noel Campbell. And I'm John Healy. Each week we'll be discussing a selected chapter from our book, The History of Castlebar, which is available online from mayobooks.ie or in-store in the Castle Bookshop. This week we're going to be discussing a chapter researched by John, which is Industry. John, I suppose to start, we're we're fortunate enough in that possibly the size of Castlebar attracted some serious industry over the years. I'm always fascinated about the history of some of the major ones we had. One was, of course, the Bacon Factory, which was the mainstay of Castlebar employment for many years. What was the cause of its eventual decline? Well, as you say, Noel, it was the mainstay of, of industry in Castlebar for, I suppose, 50 years or more, you know, and it was always known just as the factory. That shows that it was mm. the, the sole source of employment, you could say. You know, if you said somebody is working in the factory, nobody had to ask what factory he was in. There was only the one factory. It was the, the bacon factory. But yeah, it, it finished up in fairly acrimonious circumstances by the late 19, mid-1980s. And it gave rise to a lot of ill feeling, I think, I think the way that it was closed down. But just to go back, it was set up, or the initiation of the bacon factory came from Cannon Lions, as did an awful lot of other things in Castlebar. Around the early in the century, himself and Father Hughes of Idanady both decided that they needed something to provide an income for farmers if they could on one hand and provide employment for the people of the town on the other. So they came up with the idea of a bacon curing industry which sort of hit both targets and uh, Canon Lyons went to London. He was a very go-ahead man, went to London, made contact with people in the trade over there talked to them about it, got their ideas, talked to a family that were the Swanningburg family. They were fairly big in the meat curing industry. And at the same time, he had talked to Lord Lucan. He was very friendly with Lucan, as we know. And he had got an agreement from Lucan that he would sell him the farmyard and the farm buildings. Lucan had an extensive farmyard and farm buildings that he would hand them over for use as a bacon factory, if it proved to be a going idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Canon Lyons went over, and Mr. Corner, C-O-R-N-E-R, Mr. Corner came over from London with a few friends, had a look at the premises, first of all, which eventually became the bacon factory, said that it was suitable, and a public meeting was held in the town hall. Very, very well attended, huge enthusiasm. That was, I think, in 19, 1911, and they decided they'd go ahead and set up a cooperative Cooperative Society. That was the original idea before it became a limited company. So it took some time to get public support, to get the money raised from people who would eventually become the shareholders in the bacon factory. The main player was T.H. Gillespie, who was elected secretary of the committee and later became secretary of the bacon company. He was, of course, the owner of the Connor Telegraph. And to him goes a lot of the credit for getting the industry off the ground. He went... He went around the whole county encouraging people to invest in this bacon company, which wasn't an easy task. People didn't have a lot of money. I mean, the 1911, 1912, 1913, uh, people weren't, weren't very well off. So it took until 1917 to get things started. But eventually they did. Brian Swanningberg became managing director of the company. And, of course, it ran into troubled times immediately. So from... 1920, 21, 22, 23, the place was closed down most of the time because of 
this civil unrest. There was no AGM, for example, between 1920 and 1923. So the first AGM, as such, was held in the middle of 1923. But he wasn't, he wasn't putting a gun to their heads now. He wasn't looking for the money back or anything like that. So yeah, it, it took off from there. Very soon they realised that in order to raise capital, they should change from a co-op society to a limited company. So they did that. They offered three shares in Castlebar Bacon Company to every one share that people had in the in the co-op. And can I ask, who, who, was, who was involved in the co-op? Are we talking about small farmers? Oh, who, small farmers, Who yes. were supplying the pigs? P- pretty animals. much, yeah, yeah. Pretty much small farmers, yeah. yeah. So was a good buy-in to the limited idea? It was. It, yeah. it was a good, a good idea. And mostly small farmers and then the businessmen of the town as well, they were very involved, you know, they... They invested as well in the in the co-op society. So, yeah, it took off from there. And luckily enough, they appointed a man called George Boyden. Mm-hmm. George Boyden was the grandfather of the late, the late George O'Malley in Mountain View. And he was, he was a very active go-ahead man and terrific ideas, great experience in the meat industry. One of the things he did was he set up depots all over the country up as far as Donegal, where the farmer in Donegal could come in, have his pigs weighed in Donegal, so that instead of him being afraid that he'd be duped if he sent the animals down to Castlebar to be weighed, your your man actually set up weighing stations. He died in... um, he died in the 1930s, died, died a young man. But by then, things were very well established. It went from strength to strength. It went into canned beef, poultry, sheep, rabbits even. R- rabbits were a big export, exporting commodity during the war years. A big delicacy, delicacy in, in England were rabbits. And at that stage, there were 500 people employed. Right. Nearly every house in McHale Road had two or maybe three of the family. You know, unlike industry nowadays, all those workers lived within, what, eight, ten miles radius. They weren't driving in and driving home to Ballyhonas or Glamorris or Glitchema afterwards. So the money was, the pay packet stayed in the town. So the 500 pay packets on a Friday were pretty much spent in the shops and the... Yeah, the taverns. And the taverns and the taverns of the town, yeah. So they're taking in, in in live animals at that stage, are they? Slaughter, they were taking in live animals, preparing and slaughter, sent, prepared and, and, and sent out, right. sent out again, okay. yeah. yeah. Big export Quite to America, canned beef was really? a huge, yeah. yeah. They were exporting a millions, million pounds worth a year to America in the 1950s. I think the American forces and the American army were, were big, big customers as well. That went on pretty well up to the 1980s. But at that stage, there began to be ominous talks about amalgamation and rationalisation and, you know, things would change and, you know, they'd have to... There are other imports we didn't want. (laughs) Exactly. So the Beresford Group, which were a meat company in London, took over, bought the shares in the company. And then rumours started to circulate that they were in cahoots with O'Mara's in Limerick, who owned Clamoris Bacon Company, and Hanley's in Ruski, another... Baking curtain plant and Handleys were very well connected politically. It was said. I don't know whether that's true or not, but this was the, and that the idea was that everything was going to move to to Ruski. This was denied, of course, by the management. And there were a few stormy AGMs in the nineteen eighties. There was one called 
of lack of confidence in the management of the factory that failed to get a seconder at the AGM. But oh. that's that's how, how heated things had become. And yeah, eventually in 1985, the beef plant closed down. The management protested this was only a temporary closure, but in fact it wasn't. It was a permanent closure. By 18, 1987, they had stopped slaughtering pigs. Pig slaughtering went to Claremorris. By 1988, the whole lot was closed down. The, the business had been taken over that time. by that time by Irish Country Bacon, another company that succeeded Beresford's. But they closed the whole lot and transferred everything to Ruski, as feared, to Handley's. And, and on the run up, in the run up, say to the to the late eighties, was there um, cutting of staff or as you, you there, know, were, the, there were, there were streamlining. Yeah, yeah there were. Yes, yeah. yeah. The beef line would have closed down, so that yeah. maybe a couple of hundred jobs went. This from the slaughter. Eventually, staff, yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a, an eventual ero- erosion of the the workforce. In the end, the place closed down, but it was a huge. It was a huge asset to the town for the 50 years that it operated. You know, then there were a lot of factors like a lot of the waste products from the factory were being flown straight into the town river, I think. A lot of people remember that. That was another bone of contention. So eventually they would have had to bring in, you know, a lot of environmental measures. Maybe they didn't want to invest in that. I think we all remember the smell smell that uh, went went around the town on on certain days. Nobody will ever forget that. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, it wasn't. It wasn't the only. Uh, you know, it was known as the factory while it was operating at its height, I suppose. But but there was also the hat factory across town. There was indeed, yeah. And yeah. and again, I mean, you mentioned some uh, some names there that weren't Castlebar names, some surnames that got involved in the bacon factory and really, you know, along with Gillespie's and the locals. Uh, but there was also uh, was there a, a Jewish connection to the the hat factory? The hat being factory, there was, there was. That came about in um, well, the idea for the hat factory came in 1938 when Sean Lemass was the incoming minister for industry and commerce. Decided that you know native industry wasn't just was, wasn't cutting it. You know, it was the first foreign direct investment that was being sought for Ireland. You know, he was very friendly with a man called John Eddie McAlin, who was a senator from Bell. John Eddie was quite a, a big businessman. He was chairman of the Irish press. He was chair of the Irish Sugar Company. He was a personal friend of De Valera. Uh, so he was, you know, quite an ambitious man in his own right. So himself and uh, Lamas and a man called Marcus Whitstam. Whitstam was a Jewish businessman in Dublin. He was in the textile trade. And the three of them hit off for Germany and Austria and Czechoslovakia, looking for new industries for Ireland. They attracted three of them. One was a ribbon plant in Longford and then two hat factories, one in Galway, one in Castlebar. It was a pretty bad time. It was 1938. It was coming into, you know, mm-hmm. Europe was entering a turbulent phase. and But they did succeed in capturing those three industries. So the factory in Castlebar was built in 1939 by McCormick's and Chambers. McCormick's and Chambers were the two contractors. The building material was hard to come by. Of course, the war was just beginning to kick in. So the factory in Castlebar was only half the size of what had been planned. But, you know, nonetheless, it was was very successful and it was a very modern plant and it had top architectural design and all of that type of thing. But, yeah, the Jewish connection was Wisdom realised that he needed to get Jews out of Europe. He realised what was coming down the line. And for that reason, he made sure that a lot of them were brought to Longford, Galway and Castlebar. 
as specialist staff in the factory. But along with that, he brought in a lot of non-industrial people under the guise of coming to work in the factories. So he had bankers and doctors and lawyers and all sorts of professionals got in under the under the umbrella of coming to work in Castlebar and Galway. Michael, uh, must have been some uh, figure if he was able to was. bend Sean Lamas to, to even looking over at Castlebar. Yeah. And you think of all the draw and all the pull from other towns from and, other and towns, cities looking yeah. for industry in those tough years. Yeah, it took a lot of influence to, to, to get that. There's a good story told about them that in the early years of the hat factory, well, both hat factories in Galway and Castlebar, that they influenced the bishop to make an edict that all women attending mass should wear hats. <laughs> rather than scarves. Scarves was a normal wear for women. But this rule came out that, you know, he'd prefer if they wore hats out of respect for the, the ceremony. So, of course, this oh, Was boosted, that actually made? Oh, it was. Was. It was. It was. It was. <laughs> so this boosted, boosted sales of hats, women's hats, and that, and this helped. My God. A small help, but a help to the... That's that's close to starting the Mass with this Mass is brought to you by... <laughs> And, and, and in terms of, um, you know, I'm sure the, the levels of employment from it went up and down at its height. Went Do we have any down. indication how many were employed in there? Yeah, there was about permanently 150, I'd say. But in high season, that went up to yeah. 250, maybe 300, 300, I suppose, at the most. And that lasted for quite a good while, while the, you know, the, the market was good and hats were being made. Then fashions, of course, changed mm. eventually and the usual, you know, there wasn't the same. This time they were exporting now from to South Africa, the Middle East, India, Australia, America. Under under what name? Under what brand name were they? Uh, Western Hats. Western Hats. Okay. Yeah. And the decline, when did that start to, when was it quite obvious that? They that came in around 1968, 69, 1970. Okay. There began to be a decline. People weren't wearing hats anymore. You see, the Jewish connection helped as well because Wisdom was able to influence customers in other countries to buy the products from from Castlebar and, and Galway. I don't know what happened to Galway. In fact, but the Castlebar one was still up and running. Eventually, it was sold to a man called Jim McKiernan, Northern Ireland man, in 1973. And he opened a factory shop in the in the Western Hats as well. His big order was making soccer caps for the FAI. You know this international caps that are given to players? Oh, okay, right. And he was he secured that, that contract and also secured a contract from the British and Scottish Football Associations. So that was that kept things ticking over yeah. as well for a while, but eventually that tapered off and in nineteen eighty one he sold Western Hats entirely to Rehab Industries. And they relocated to the Brafy Road, where they are, still are, I think, you know, there's mm. still production in, in place out there. Again, it was highly successful for 30, 40 years, mm. you know. The factory, I mean, it's a factory still there, of course, derelict the, now. It's derelict <coughs> now, yeah. A, ma a massive, massive site. It was in a very attractive building when it was built, you know. It looked I think the it was old, very well maintained and very well kept. Was the old, ch old chimney knocked a while back, was it? That's right, it Is was. It? Yeah. it was, it was, yeah. 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 So that sort of brought an end to things until the arrival of Baxter or Travenal, yeah. as it was back then. And that and changed the fortune of the, the change town. Of, changed the fortune, yeah. And of course, like every business, I suppose, it came into troubled water as well. It, it came did. close, Baxter, to, to closing. Oh, very, very close to it. Very, very close to closing. In 1980, there were 
700 people working there and a further 200 in Swinford. But then, due to a, a range of factors, first of all, cutbacks in health spending internationally, I'd say. It was said that the plant in Castlebar wasn't as competitive as other Travenol, as it was still then, was Travenol plants. And eventually, on the 9th of January in 1985, the managing director at the time was Ned Kivett, and Ned had the task of writing to the 700 employees, telling them that the plant was to close over the following year. Swinford would remain open, funny enough, but Castle Bar was to close. So, of course, this made for national headlines. I mean, it was a huge blow, a huge blow nationally to the status of Ireland as a, a centre for foreign direct investment. All sorts of protestations and appeals and government ministers flying back and over to America in the hope that they change their mind. The CCDA was set up here, Castlebar Community Development Association. They lobbied, they went to America, they tried to talk to the the head people in Illinois mm. to get them to change their mind, but they, they weren't for they weren't for changing. Mm. Production continued in Castlebar. It was then Baxter Laboratories. Production continued but they knew that the axe was was over their head. And then, out of the blue, in July of 1987, the announcement came that Travenal would remain open, that America had changed its mind, which was unprecedented, you know. I mean, when they make up their mind about something, it's made up, you know. There's no going back but yeah. on this occasion. And somebody else has to be let down on the other side of that news. I, I wonder what down. was the, do, have we any indication of what was the, the change of heart? I think that part of it was that they were in, well, they were influenced by all of the lobbying that was being done. But secondly, by the loyalty of the remaining staff who knew that the axe was ready to fall, but still continued to produce to a very high level of efficiency. In fact, so much so that they won, during the period of the threatened closure, Castlebar won several intercompany awards for being the most efficient Travenol plant in Europe. And I think this impressed the American bosses so much that they thought, well, look, you know, if these people are, you know, that loyal, let's give them another chance. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened in the end. And it was an immense, it was immense relief, of course, but it was a huge U-turn, I'd say, probably never never before heard of in, in the line of American investment in Ireland. And, of course, it went from strength to strength. But, the, of course, the difference between that and the old bacon company was that now the employees were coming, they were commuting to work. So the benefits were being spread over a far wider area. As I said, back in the old days at the bacon factory, the 500 pay packets were spent mm. by the Monday, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> in, yeah. in Castlebar. But it was... Boom time. But whereas now the Travenol paychecks were being spent wide, in over a wide area. And out yeah. of town. Well, John, thanks very much. Uh, it's always interesting to hear kind of the attractiveness Castle Bar has for outward investment. And certainly we've hit yeah. on some of the most important ones there. Thanks. We do. Yeah. And it's very much itemised in, in the chapter in the book, of course. I need to hardly say. Before we go to an ad break, we're going to take a look back at an ad from the past. John, you have an interesting one from the Connacht from the mid-50s. That's right, Noel. This one is from 1958, and it's it was issued by the Department of Agriculture. It was a warning notice, but it reminded me that so many people in town either kept pigs in the backyard or raised chickens in the backyard. Yeah. So it wasn't purely for farmers. The ad reads, warning, day-old chicks. It is not safe to buy day-old chicks offered for sale at fairs or markets or by hawkers. 
These chicks are usually all cockerel chicks. Most probably they will not survive. If any survive, they may bring disease into your flock. Day-old chicks should be bought direct from a licensed poultry hatchery. It is the safest and most economical way, issued by the Department of Agriculture. So it's an interesting take on what was happening in, in the life, hawker market. Counterfeit livestock, nearly. <laughs> the Connacht Telegraph, serving the community since 1828 and now reaching 1.5 million people per month on our online and print platforms. We'd always like to hear from our listeners and we're, we would like to invite you to submit comments or questions to historyofcastlebar at gmail.com and myself and John would happily discuss them. We have a question in from Charlie here in Castlebar. John, the question posed was, are there any of the old Castlebar business houses still in existence within the town? Well, I suppose, Noel, trying to think back up another main street, I think uh, Kilkelly's is probably the oldest existing business house now. I think Kilkelly's was was founded in the mid-1800s. And possibly the Irish House, Heverdens, which of course still trades, the licensed premises still trades as the Irish House. They're the two oldest, I think, in the town, which are still operating. Now, Wins, you know, would have been yeah, recently closed. Wins, yeah, Wins, yeah know, as, a, as, a, as, an opera, as, a, as a business family, they were there since the 1860s. From That's Castle right. Street, they started out and moved up to Main Street where they had eventually had two businesses. Right. One, of course, is the Castle Bookshop. Uh, That's right. Currently. That's right. It's an interesting story about the winds and, and how they, how will we say, morphed with the appetite of the, of the, of the town. You know, we, we all know of winds as a renowned photography business and one of the earlier photogra- photographers in Mayo and probably, probably Ireland going back into the mid-1800s. But as, how will we say, people's interest turned to other things, the winds adapted pretty quickly and uh, items were for sale in the shop. And I just, uh, right. w- one one item that came across, uh, I came across before was the, the apparition at Knock. And uh, when was out to Knock very quickly, 1879, I think that was, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. It was, he was yeah. out straight away getting photos of the gable and developing posters, you know, memorabilia posters. Right. For- and selling these posters in the shop. So he was out Very straight away. On that. Absolutely, yes, and yes. they were, and they were selling they were selling goodo, yes. um, and I've seen one of them, and it's quite it's quite crafty. It's all his own it's all his own photographs. He had he had a great idea as well by himself. He was going around taking photos of you know the the more glamorous landscapes of Mayo. We'll say uh, going down to Killary and up to Belmullet and uh, selling those photographs in the shop. Of course, people weren't getting out as they. They can now as easily as you can. And then it daunted him. There was an interest in them, a lot of interest. So he started organising early tourist excursions. I was just going to ask you that. Yes. He, he, would, he, was, he had the carts and he was selling the tickets. And he'd say, you've seen Belmullet, now come and see it in, in the flesh, so to speak. And he'd bring them up. And he had organised with inns and pubs and whatnot on the way where they'd stop. And, you know, I'm sure he might have been getting a bit of a kickback Very from those good, places. Yeah, yeah. And he'd have it all, uh, yeah. your ticket would tell you exactly the time that you were going and the time you were back. And you, yeah. it was a day, it was a day long trip day to out to Ackle or wherever he was going yeah. to. Yeah. And he'd be back then as well. And yes. he had it from A to B. He was piquing your interest in a particular area you might not yes. have cared less about. Yeah. And then when he and got he your interest, up. he had you on the carriage. You're on the carriage. <laughs> <laughs> you're on the carriage and you're on your way up. Uh, an interesting. He, an he, always, all is adapting to, yeah. to yeah. what people's yeah. interest yeah. was in. Yeah. Another one I should have mentioned was Gavin's, well, Gavin's and Spencer Street now. Gavin's Bakery, as it was, would be part of the oldest. 
think Gavin's were the oldest bakeries. You had Lavelle's Bakery on the riverside as well, but those two would be... Is that uh, old buildings it's as a, down at, uh, behind into, we'll say, Tony McHugh's car park, as it was called? Is that Lavelle's old bakery there, that old building? It's now derelict. Is it indeed? Large. That's right. That's it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Fine stone buildings there, yeah. you know, yeah, along by the river, the <gasps> riverbank there, you know. Yeah. And, of course, some of the pubs, you know, you have Cody's go back to, is it 1905? That's right, yeah. 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 And Rockies and Rockies as well. Mick it's over Burns, 100 years old. You yeah, know, yeah. And of course, you think of Morin's, which would have been a, a pub. That's right. Under a different name. Under a different name, yeah. Continues yes. on with the license yeah. to this day. So a lot of the, the pubs would have been there for a long, long time. What, is a, what a surprise. Great town. <laughs> well, thanks to our listeners uh, for joining us again. And we'd like to invite you to join us next week. The book, of course, The History of Castle Bar can be purchased online at mayobooks.ie or in-store in the Castle Bookshop. So from myself, Noel Campbell, goodbye. And from me, John Healy, thank you. The History of Castle Bar podcast is sponsored by mayobooks.ie. The series is produced by me, Brendan Gilmartin. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend and leave a review.